Greetings, film lovers, and welcome to The Memory Machine, a historical, anecdotal, pop-cultural podcast. I'm your host, Nate Lockhart, and today is all about Capital Fest, a film festival at the Capitol Theater in Rome, New York, which celebrates underseen film from the silent and early sound eras. My friend and Geekiverse colleague Seth Zielinski and I went down on Saturday, August 11th to take in Capital Fest 16 for ourselves and got to take in a King's Bounty's worth of rare and special films. I also got a couple of terrific interviews, one with pianist and musicologist Dr. Philip C. Carley about the art of accompanying silent films, and another with the manager of the Nitrate Film Vault at the Library of Congress, George Williman, about film preservation and availability. But first, let's talk about the fest itself, the movies we saw. So today is just going to be me, by the way. Uh, I am recording this right before I'm going on vacation. So time has been crazy, and uh, I will try to insert Seth Zielinski's opinions and such as they come about. Uh, apologies, Seth, if I forget something. But I talked to him before the show just to make sure that you know I got his, uh, got his opinions in. But anyway... Um, so the inside of the theater is beautiful. It's a gorgeous old movie palace that has been very well kept. And judging from an announcement that we received during the show, it will continue to continue to be well kept, including a restoration of the original marquee. The Capitol also boasts its original installation, 1928 Muller. Muller, that's with an O with two dots over it. The 1928 Muller Theater Organ. Uh, with which to accompany its films, and it sounds like a dream. A small, uh, very prototypical theater concession stand welcomes you as you pass through the foyer, offering popcorn, candies, and moxie soda for very reasonable prices. Uh, like, really reasonable. I'm talking, like, large popcorn for, like, four or five bucks, which I believe at your Regal is now, what, eight dollars? Anyway, uh, but Seth taking advantage of this, he bought a $6 souvenir mug, and that earned him free refills for the entire rest of the day. So he was constantly seen uh, sipping both coffee and soda from his, uh, from his souvenir coffee mug. Movies showed nearly all day, from 9 a.m. to almost midnight, with some short breaks in between for shopping at the dealer's room, and longer breaks for meals. I watched nearly every film, excepting one. Missing out, I missed out on the first half of Night of Love so I could interview George Williman, and that was totally worth it. Seth took a more leisurely approach, came in and out of the theater for certain films, and took his time with meals and the vendor hall. Speaking of the vendor hall, it was located in an adjacent building behind the theater itself. Inside was a treasure trove of old film, books, and magazines, and lobby cards, posters, glass theater slides, all sorts of uh, all sorts of manner of merchandise and nostalgia items. Those magazines, by the way, um, some dated back to the very early silent era that you could be had for like six bucks. You could have a silent movie magazine from 1915 for six bucks. Uh, but they also had DVDs and laser discs, and VHS tapes, and even eight and sixteen millimeter film reels. There were tables upon tables of gray market DVDs for movies and TV shows that were otherwise unavailable. Things like some fifties TV shows that have yet to be re uh, released, some old film serials that have never seen the light of day on home video, 
or at least if they have, it hasn't been commercially available for decades. And uh, a lot, a lot of 30s and 40s programmers. Programmers, of course, meaning sort of the, the filler, the, the B-movie. Not quite the B-movie that you think of, like, 50s style, you know, the, sci the goofy sci-fi stuff, but, but as in the second feature, what would follow up. Um, I, myself, at the vendor room, I picked up a couple of old books on silent comedy. One that uh, was just a general silent comedy book. Another one about Harold Lloyd. I picked up a couple of DVDs. One of those gray market DVDs for a film called Lilac Time, which has never been on home video. VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, nothing. It's, it's never been out. So Lilac Time starring Colleen Moore. That was the one I got. And the other DVD I bought was a second volume of Marcel Perez silent comedies. Uh, he was very prolific in the 1910s and most of the 1920s. A lot of really good stuff. He was a former circus performer, so there's lots of cool acrobatic gags and things like that that he does. And he uh, willing to take quite a bump for comedy. Uh, that, that's been really fun. I also picked up a vintage Superman 2 lobby card for uh, one of my dear friends. Seth, uh, he, he picked up a few things, but I don't remember all of them, but the one I remember was that he picked up a book, or really, should I say, a tome, on the history of the shadow. And, you know, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, let's talk about the movies that were there that day. Again, I was, we were only there for Saturday, so unfortunately we couldn't get the whole breadth of the festival. In fact, I got to—I I didn't get to see Philip Carley play, which made me a little sad, since I used to see him play a lot when I lived in Rochester. He would play for silent films at the Dryden Theater. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but I did get to see him, and of course, like I said, I got to interview him, so you'll hear from that in a little bit. Uh, but here's the movies that we saw. So the first one of the day was Mamba, which was the first sound drama to be shot entirely in Technicolor. Now, when we say Technicolor, we're not talking about, you know, a full range of color here. This is two-color Technicolor. So in order to get the full range of color on film, you would have a cyan register, a magenta register, and a yellow register, which is to say that, that you'd have these three different colors shot on three different film strips, and then you'd put them together, and out of those three color film strips, you would get full color. Well, they hadn't quite found a way to do that efficiently yet. So the most common way of getting color back in those early days was two colors. So instead of there being a cyan, magenta, and yellow register that you would mix together to get full color, you would have two, a red and a green register. And putting those together, it looks pretty, it, it's very interesting. It has a very unique look. Nothing else looks quite like two-color Technicolor does. Um, but the and that and it was interesting for for that reason to be able to get to see that to be able to get to see actual f uh, two color Technicolor film. And that's another thing I should probably add is that a lot of these most of the presentations that we saw were on actual film. Uh, these were not um, these were not for the most part they they were not digital presentations. They were mostly on film, which is really cool. So I got to see a real two color Technicolor film print pretty rad. Uh, the movie itself was fine, I guess. Very problematic, because it's about 
uh, English colonists in Africa. And I believe at one point the hero of the movie mentions how whites are the being the superior race have a duty to help out the savage at the savage Africans. This is your hero. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, but at the same time, you can kind of look at it and say, well, it was 1930. I mean, it wasn't right then either, but, you know, it's, you take it for what it is. <laughs> you just sort of, eh, you shake your head and you move on. But it is interesting as a historical piece and, and to watch it that way. And um, other than the two, and there was various, there were some very impressive crowd scenes of uh tons and tons of natives and and uh i was really expecting at the end to, the natives to win because that's what morally should happen <laughs> um is that they take back over but no the the english cavalry comes to save the day which is you know yeah it's it's, it's uh uh hard to recommend but i'm still glad i saw it the next movie was a 1918 silent uh, film circus of life it was a silent uh i, I guess you call it like a, a morality play like a victorian morality play about uh mostly about the evils of drink um and of course it is a very complete victorian uh morality play featuring a child on a deathbed who implores the hero to lead a virtuous life um of course the nice thing about this is that the child does not die come you know uh is uh is it restored it makes a full recovery so you know but but that was a that was a that was an interesting watch um then after that was the stolen ranch was which was a really fun western about uh a guy who tries to get uh who, who tries to make sure that there's a ranch that stays in the hands of the right people they're unscrupulous folks trying to steal it out from uh from under her so or from from under him and uh the guy whose ranch is being stolen is under a bit of is under a bit of predicament and is kind of unwilling and unable well not unwilling he's very unable to fight because this features a character who is suffering aftershock effects from world war one uh shell-shocked i should say uh so his buddy ha uh, has to try to step up for him to to, to help out his incapacitated his incapacitated friend and they 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 meet interesting people and they fall in love and and uh there's uh some some great blood and thunder action in it the great action scenes great chase scenes in it um yeah it was a really fun western i i enjoyed that one quite a bit so then that we had our lunch break we uh, i checked out the vendor hall bought some stuff um we then saw so to welcome us back from lunch, very interesting, was a short called Princess Ladybug. Uh, this was newly restored. They had found the film... Uh, uh, George Willimon talked about this before the film show, uh, showed. He's, the, he's, uh, he's a manager of the Nitrate Film Vault at the Library of Congress, and he talked about restoring this movie. And he said that, well, they had the film elements, but they didn't have the soundtrack because this was a sound-on-disc short, meaning that uh, 
this is a very early sound method in the early days of the, the first era of sound film where you would have the film as one element and then the sound would be on a vinyl record that would play uh, uh, in synchronization to the film which I'm sure you can only imagine the the problems that could be caused with that. But anyway, that was that was the first major method of, of doing it. But they had the film element of Princess Ladybug, and they were lacking the sound element. They were lacking the vinyl discs. So George asks around to different people, people of the Vitaphone Project, which I highly encourage you to look them up. They do fascinating work. And uh, he talked to one of the guys there and said, do you have uh, is there anything called Princess Ladybug or something? Something like that. And this guy searches through... Uh, he, he said, "He said, well, I know that sounds familiar." And searches through, and he finds it, and he says, "Okay, well, I got it, George. But here's the problem: uh, it's broken in half. The record is broken in half, and there is a small wedge missing from it at that." So you're like, "Well, I guess this film doesn't have sound." Well, not so fast. They were able to, I believe, through a laser turntable, be able to put the two mostly complete pieces there, have this laser turntable scan the elements that it had, and then, you know, what about the wedge? Well, they had a program that, using an algorithm, filled in the sound that was missing. So you have complete sound, miraculously, for this musical novelty short. Uh, it, it's and it's an it, oh boy, it's a humdinger of a short. Uh, it's hard to tell what's being said, and it's not because that the that the sound is broken in half. It sounds totally complete. When you watch the film, that there is nothing to indicate to you when you're listening to it that there's anything wrong other than just the records worn and that really is it that's the only problem you can notice because sometimes it's hard to tell what people are saying because the record has just been so worn but there's no detectable breaks i could not tell you where the sound had been filled in i i, I couldn't i don't know it's it, it it was done the restoration was done so well but so what is this short actually so you say princess ladybug what on earth is that well what it is is it it is a music, like I said, it's a musical novelty short uh, about a ladybug that gets married to a grasshopper, and these are opera singers in uh, these outrageous costumes. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you could find there. You must be able to find. Uh, you can find pictures of this on Google. Um, I encourage you to look it up. Look up Princess Ladybug. Uh, this this musical short it's it's something it's uh it, it's is very strange and I'm very happy it exists. Following that, uh, big uh, course change was a movie called The Storm, which uh, was a drama directed by future Oscar winner William Wyler. He won for best years uh, best years of our lives. Uh, anyway, but this is 1930, so this is much earlier on. And let me read the quick synopsis I stole off of IMDb for you, because it, synops it uh, synopsizes it better than I could. Uh, Burr and Dave, 
two close friends who have backed each other up in countless difficulties are torn apart by the arrival of a woman, Manette, who becomes stranded with them in their cabin during a raging blizzard. And yeah, it's an excellent drama. Lupe Velez stars as Manette, and she is terrific. It's it's very claustrophobic. It's a very claustrophobic film. Intentionally so, obviously. Uh, it feels even more so by the fact that it's a very early sound-on-film uh, specimen. So what that means is is that the the the, the sound of the sound-on-film took up more than usual of the film's real estate, so the picture is even narrower than the standard Academy ratio of four three. So that I feel like that even adds more to the uh, to the insular feeling of of the movie and it just does such a great job with this slow burn showing these two really good friends get at each other's throats uh over over this woman who they you know both of them believe they have some sort of right to to date her to be with her and in the end i mean maybe i should just let you should just see it (laughs) but but it takes a different direction than you would think for a 1930s drama really good highly recommended uh following that was bratz bratz is a terrific 1930 laurel and hardy comedy short featuring laurel and hardy as the parents of literal littler versions of themselves and what i mean by this is not little as in they cast someone who looks like them to be their children no Laurel and Hardy are parents to themselves, smaller. So what they did is they shot themselves as the parents, and they also shot themselves in children's clothes, but with props, oversized props and sets to make to make them you know, look like kids and, and, and very expertly composited them in with... Uh, with the quote-unquote adult Laurel and Hardy to create this. And you'd think hearing that, you think, oh boy, grown men playing children, you know, that's always um, that's always in danger of kind of being creepy and looking creepy, but it's not at all in the short. Uh, Ollie and Stan do such a great job of portraying these just these little nuances of, of, of being kids doing something like uh, like uh, slapping slapping one of the kids on behind and then running up over onto a chair and just sort of rocking on it innocuously but but not too but not like cartoonishly looking innoc- innocuously but just 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 the way kids do or things like you know you get in bed and you're like can I have a glass of water and the other one says well, me too and just like that those are very those are very specific kid nuances that this short seems to get and also of course there's the excellent laurel and hardy slapstick which i always explain to my friends as it's not quite what you're thinking if you're thinking of three stooges three stooges the joke is mo gets hit on the head with an eye beam <laughs> you know and that's kind of the joke and maybe he slaps larry back or something uh, and the joke is that Larry gets hurt by a slap. Which is, there's nothing wrong with. I enjoy the Three Stooges. 
but with Laurel and Hardy, it's uh, Oliver. Ollie gets hit in the head with an eye beam, and then it comes, you know, it comes off, and and that's kind of funny. Depend, you know, they put in a funny sound effect or something, but then Ollie just gives a little look at the camera, cocks his head a little bit, and just shakes his head, and looks so disappointed at the audience of what just happened, and that's where the humor comes from. Um, it's it's great. Please watch Laurel and Hardy shorts. They are all wonderful. Uh, look at anything from from when they were working with Hal Roach. It's terrific. Love Brats. Oh, and the next one was a big surprise for us for for Seth and I. Was Bulldog Drummond Strikes Back, starring Ronald Coleman. And when we saw this on the bill, we thought, okay, Bulldog Drummond Strikes Back is going to be sort of a it's going to be sort of uh, what what you expect of the of the time period, nineteen thirty four. It's going to be some kind of a crime drama, mystery, something or other. What we got was not that at all. What we got was a, well, it was still sort of a murder mystery, but it was a comedy, spoofing, spoofing a genre that at that point had only been a few years old, and it was really fun and really funny. There were terrific characters in it. Uh, the character of the police chief, uh, the exasperated police chief, was hysterical. Uh, Bulldog Drummond, of course, is sort of like a mix of... Imagine if uh, Dick Tracy had more in common with Bugs Bunny. And that's how Ronald Coleman plays Bulldog Drummond. And it's really fun. He does things like, you know, he, he's, he constantly laughs in the sight of danger. Someone, uh, you know, one of the someone points a gun at him and uh from behind a door and he just says oh hi there methuselah or something like no hi there Mc yeah, forget it but i i can't do it justice so uh don't listen to me try <laughs> um uh it, it really was terrific i i really hope that this gets a proper release at some point i was desperate to to watch it again after seeing it that night because I, I loved it but there is no way to really watch it. It's never had a home video release. It's never been on video. It's never been on VHS. It's never been on DVD. It's never been on Laserdisc or Beta or any of that stuff. So, I mean, it is on YouTube and Daily Motion, but it's not very watchable. The Daily Motion one, the picture stutters. And I, I can't, and then and then the YouTube one, it's very fuzzy, and it's just, I, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I mean, I guess if I have to, but I don't want to. I want to see the real thing. I, I, I want to see it. Another great thing about the movie, it all takes place like during the same night. So, and Bulldog Drummond is just too excited about solving this mystery that he just keeps waking up all of his his friends and, and colleagues to try to help him with this mystery, and everyone else is just walking around tired, waiting for him to be done with this this thing that he's doing but his energy never loses a step and, and that incongruity just is, is so funny it, it leads to so many laughable situations gosh ah who fox just released this movie what are you doing you're sitting on it you have a you have this um, this uh, undiscovered classic uh, right in your vaults release it please just just scan the film and put it on a dvd i don't care um but it was really good i I, I'd recommend it to you if you could find it. Uh, the next one after that was A Daughter of the Law, which was a silent Western short 
concerning bootleggers and a, uh, and a secret agent played by Grace Kennard. So the secret agent is a woman, which is pretty interesting. And uh, she infiltrates this... Uh, she becomes friendly with this backwoods family and finds their, their bootlegging stash and, you know, and manages to win over the hearts of one of the bootleggers and, you know, and, and this is also has very, you know, Victorian morality play hinges to it, which, again, very interesting. Um, it, it has its tropes, but um, the tropes are fun from time to time. After that was Night of Love, and... I did not watch most of this. I came in for the climax, and that was about it. Uh, but Seth watched the whole thing, and he really enjoyed it. Th this is one of his favorites of the night. Um, so let me read to you the description from the Capital Fest page, because uh, I can't accurately tell you. So, with, uh, with apologies, Harrison's reports. See, it's a silent historical adventure. A duke, Montague Love kidnaps the bride of a gypsy, Ronald Coleman, intent on exercising a nobleman's right to spend the first night with a new bride. When the young woman dies, the gypsy vows revenge. An excellent drama. The first half is mildly interesting, but the second half grips one and holds one's attention nailed to the screen. So thank you, Harrison's reports. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought the climax was pretty rip-roaring. That's a, a good action, a good uh, mob scene. A good angry mob scene. There's always uh, I haven't seen a bad. I haven't yet seen a bad movie with a good European angry uh, angry peasant mob scene. So that was good. Following that, the penultimate film of the night was a short called Television Highlights, which uh, is a musical short. You know, it's showing different things, singers and dancers, and um, uh, my favorite, Roy Smek, who was a terrific guitarist. He did a lot of uh, jazz standards of the day, but he, he always played, he played guitar very strange. He played the guitar on his lap. Uh, he'd lay it flat on his lap and, and play it that way. Um, but but he's an excellent guitarist. Look at, I mean, just listen to him do the 12th Street Rag, and uh, you'll be one over. Uh, it also, well, I guess a, an interesting way to put it would be, if you know SpongeBob SquarePants, it sounds a lot like the background music of SpongeBob SquarePants at times, but I swear he's a great guitarist uh, regardless. But he's in it, and the bridging sequences done in the short are done by a very young Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman, who is he, you ask? He is a comedian of the, well, not really of the era, because he kept doing it forever. He had the same bit of these rapid one-liners, like just constant, constant, constant uh, one-liners, one after the other. And he did that from, you know, this time in the 1930s, way up into the 90s. There's an episode of Tiny Toon Adventures with Henny Youngman in it, doing the same jokes. Um, this guy would do, like, if he just sort of happened to be around a ballroom and there was a wedding going on, he'd go up and talk to, to, the, to the bride of the groom and say, like, hey, you know, uh, pay me 200 bucks, I'll do a set right now for you, Henny Youngman. <laughs> He's an interesting dude. But yeah, that short was a lot of fun. And then following that, we had the... And then after that, we had the final film of the night, Who Killed Gay, Gail Preston? A Columbia crime uh, crime movie, kind of a programmer, B-movie kind of a thing, bolstered by a very early appearance of Rita Hayworth, which was pretty cool. 
but otherwise it was very typical of the time which actually was kind of cool it, it's like if you love sort of that kind of film noir that early film noir things like guys with guns appearing in the shadows like you see the shadow of the guy with the gun and then you see the gun itself and then the shot and you know it, it's it has it has all those trappings in it and if you love that sort of thing, if you love those cliches, if you love that style, Who Killed Gail, Gail Preston has got it for you in spades. It takes place in a nightclub themed around a jail. It's pretty cool. I, I actually liked it a lot more than I thought I would. When I first saw it, I was like, I don't know, Columbia crime drama, who cares? But by the end of it, I, I was really enjoying it. It was, it, it was, it was fun. It uh, like, like I said, it, it was very of the era, and I think that's what made it so fun. But yeah, that was the movies that we saw at Capitol Fest. And now, without further ado, I will turn on the interview here that I had with Dr. Philip C. Carley. Hey everybody, I'm here in Rome, New York, home of the Capitol Theater and thus home of Capitol Fest. Uh, it's a gorgeous old theater. I don't know much about it yet, but I intend to learn very much soon. Anyway, I'm here with a doctor, is it correct? A doctor, yeah. Yes, Dr. Philip Carley. It's a PhD, but, a PhD. Uh, they, but they, well, we, they, I go by it, more or less. I work, worked hard enough for it. Okay, yes. <laughs> so I refer to you as doctor, then. That's we, quite yeah, all right it's all you. right. It's a doctor or mister. Is, uh, don't call me late for dinner. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's no. right. So... Uh, you play music for silent films, mm -hmm. and I've seen you do it uh, quite a few times there in Rochester, New York. Yes. Is that would you consider that your your residence, so to speak, uh, the, your resident theater where you play? Well, certainly, uh, yeah, I am the resident. I am. Oh, you are. Yeah, that is your title. Uh, okay. I, I'm actually as close to a title as you can. I get is uh -huh. I am the resident musician to the Dryden Theater oh. uh, of the well, George Eastman Museum. So. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's not it, it's never been codified as such, but I'm usually referred to mm -hmm, that way mm -hmm. by the motion picture department. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people I talk to, and I mean, as you imagine, I, I'm in my early 30s. A lot of people my age, mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of friends. They don't really watch a lot of silent movies, so they're always surprised when uh, I bring them to one. And they, the first thing they say is like, "So, is he just making that up?" Or, and I'm sure this is like the first question you often get. So let's settle this here and now, record it for posterity. I'm making it up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm making, making it up, up. Mm -hmm. but uh, you... Yeah. It's, it's not exactly what a lot of people think until you, you figure it out. Right. Um, you don't actually follow the film. You don't, you don't play with the film. You mm -hmm. play ahead of it. Hmm. Uh, I see. I, because, I see what you're getting at. Yes. Um, I've done this uh, now for... Forty years. Mm -hmm. I started when I was thirteen, and um, actually, good lord, forty. Yeah, it was nineteen seventy-six. Forty-two years, mm -hmm. and um, so what you do is that if you you have to play ahead of a film, mm -hmm. there are only so many ways a film can go, depending upon who made it, what country it's from, mm -hmm. the style of film. Because if you play a f with the film, actually, mm. with the action, you're actually behind it. Mm. You have to anticipate so that you synchronize. Right. Yes. And sometimes you make a 
questionable gesture or a musical phrase, but you have to be uh, flexible enough or mm. plastic that you can turn and keep it mm. moving and sensible I also and keep the whole thing coherent within the terms of the film itself. Mm. I also get the feeling that... Um, the if, if there's a uh, a tone in the change of the movie, if something if pacing changes, and the musician doesn't quite see it right away, but then switches over, people usually grant that leeway of flexibility to the musician. To well, usually, yeah, it's because yeah. if you're <laughs> if you're doing your job right, you're not supposed to be listening to the music that closely. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah you're right. supposed to be in the experience with mm-hmm. the film, mm-hmm. um, and most of the time we get it pretty quick you know mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's just uh, a matter of pulling around yeah. and there are cues there are always things that are telegraphed mm-hmm. uh, in a film mm-hmm. that help uh, you know a sensitive musician mm-hmm. who, who's attuned to what these films do mm-hmm. so you structure your work that way sure sure do you have a particular music memory with a particular silent film, something where you feel like the moment really hit, where the music and the, and the scene came to a crescendo and you were able to really drive that home and you could feel it in the audience. Was there any... Oh, there have been a number of times I've yeah. done that. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 there's a lot of feeling from the audience. Mm. If you've got a good audience, you've got a receptive audience, that feeds into the energy that the musician gives mm. to the film. So that it's much easier playing for a good film with a good audience, with a receptive, mm-hmm. supportive audience, because it's riding a wave. Yeah. And there are times when you can feel something building to a point, and it just opens up. Mm. Yes. Um, yes. And it uh, it feels terrific when it does. Uh, even mm. with a film like we were showing here, uh, the first feature I played, Mm-hmm. which was Too Many Kisses mm-hmm. uh, with Richard Dix. Uh, it's directed by a fairly erratic director, Paul mm-hmm. Sloan. Mm-hmm. But he at least was a workman. He mm-hmm. knew how things went. And there was one point in that where there is a build-up, mm-hmm. and he telegraphs it beautifully. Him, uh, He was also helped enormously, um, as I recall... I'm trying to remember who the cameraman was. It was a good, very, very good cameraman. It might have been Folsey. Uh, it was uh, George Folsey at, at Paramount. It was an Astoria production. Mm-hmm. The camera just pans up when uh, mm-hmm. William Powell is menacing uh, the heroine. Uh, mm-hmm. Powell's the villain in this. And suddenly the camera pans up, and we know that at the top of the building is <laughs> Richard Dix yes. ready to spring. <laughs> <laughs> and it's paced very yeah. well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you just ride that to that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you spin it so that you land with him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. on that shot with mm-hmm. him. I, I remember watching once uh, the Eastman or the Dryden Theater was playing the Peter Pan with Betty Bronson. Mm-hmm. And they were originally going to do, like, these tapes that had been made as the background, like that um, James Card had, yes. had helped make. Mm-hmm. But, but they couldn't sew the last minute, and you came in, and you uh, came in and helped. I remember I was sitting behind a uh, father and her, his daughter, and there's a scene where Peter Pan uh, implores 
the audience to clap to mm-hmm. bring Tinkerbell back to life. And just the, I remember you doing like a little tinkling, sort of like the sound of, of clapping, and the and little girl was like going nuts trying to bring <laughs> that fairy back to life. And I was like, this is, oh, what a beautiful cinema moment. Just, well, yeah, well, it's, yeah. It, it, that's one of the neat things. That's actually yeah. built into the play, too. Yeah. You, you right. know. Um, and I've written an orchestral score for that, and it's oh. an interesting, I've toured with that. Uh, both in a small orchestral form, it's been yeah. recorded on uh, in, in video media, oh, mm-hmm. and uh, and for full orchestra. And at mm-hmm. that point, it kind of is the end of the second act mm-hmm. of of the th- if you have a three act structure. Mm-hmm. And in the orchestra, I just uh, hold uh, a cymbal roll. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. because uh, just so that it builds up, it gives the audience time yeah. to do that. Because right. any other music underneath that, you, you you have to let the audience participate. Right, right, um, right. It, yeah. it's, not, it's an unusual moment in film, breaking mm-hmm. the fourth wall. And it was yeah. an unusual moment in, in uh, playwriting, even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also... At the time, <laughs> I have to say this is a, a little tangential. The original sure. play was premiered during Christmas time mm-hmm. with the uh, and the British pantomime tradition. Uh, the audience often participates yeah. with the actors on stage. Well, so, uh, so Harlequin plays and all. Yeah, that. Harlequin yeah, plays. Yeah. You know, Dick Whittington's cat and so forth. Yeah. They still mm-hmm. go on the stage in Britain. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, Barry's play uh, premiered in December 1904, as I remember. Mm. So it was part of that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. it has a lot of those same same parts of the, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have one final question because I see that it's getting to be lunchtime, and I want to oh, sure. let let you go on and uh, talk to your other friends that you have here. Um, uh-huh. But there's one thing that's been killing me that I can't remember. I was hoping mm-hmm. you could help me. Yeah. There was they show. Uh, the uh, Dryden Theater showed uh, some short westerns, some short silent westerns. Mm-hmm. There was one with a guy, the bad guy got really infatuated with rattlesnakes. Oh, and it sort of turned into like a monster movie at yes. the end. Yeah, I, yeah it's, it's racking uh, my brain trying to remember the title. It, well, you just said it. It's, it, a, it's a little bit like the gag in Avalon where okay. they say, you know, there's that picture with the stagecoach. Yeah. And one of the old guys says, Stagecoach. Yeah. yeah, it's got a stagecoach in it. What's yeah. the name of the picture? Stagecoach. Yeah. Uh, well, the film's called The Rattlesnake. Oh, well, <laughs> it's a It's a Lubin. Uh, okay. It's a two-reel Lubin. Yeah. Um, Remember, it was uh, barely holding together. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it came, yeah. Um, yeah. And that had been preserved just in time. It had come yeah. from London. Okay. Uh, the Rattlesnake, it, it was directed by and starring Romaine Fielding, okay. who was Lubin's leading director at the time and is almost entirely forgotten, partially because there's so little Lubin left. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a huge mm-hmm. fire at Lubin in 1915. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fielding had left the company and actually had a pretty much had finished his career by that point, so that most of Fielding's work is lost, mm. except for this one two real uh, yeah, drama, was, which yeah. is very strange. It, it is, is, it's is great, a, though. It, it, oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of my, my favorites. Brain after all these years, it's like, yeah, you know, this weird. Um, Quasi universal monster movie in a two in a two real silent western. It's yeah, yeah, he uh, he's a very strange, very very strange film. Yeah, but uh, but it's a terrific picture, and supposedly Fielding was 
considered a leading director of the time. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, nearly on a level with Griffith and Ince, wow. uh, and Ince's stable of directors. Uh, but that guy who uh, made the ring, was that the wedding ring? Who was that? Uh, Turner. Turner. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the wishing ring. Wishing, wishing ring. ring. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. Who was another favorite director of mine? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, as I said, there's almost nothing left of Fielding's work, mm-hmm. which is yeah. uh, sadly the case of a lot of that that time period specifically in silent film. Oh yeah, in the early teens. I mean, that's, um, that's most of Lon Chaney's stuff from that period is well. Long that's gone. because it, well, because that was all Universal, and yeah. Universal um, dumped mm-hmm. all of its stuff. Actually, the order to be given uh, have Universal dump it mm-hmm. went out. I think like three days before there was a request from the Eastman House oh, to get no. it. <laughs> uh, don't tell me that. <laughs> uh, it, I still I hold out hope against hope that they'll find the Miracle Man. That's the one. You'll ne- you never can tell. Yeah. Uh, there's about five minutes now of it extant. Uh, right from the from the various compilations short, yeah. and so forth. Uh-huh. And a print may turn up. Things are turning up in the oddest places. Um, the second you know. reel of the Battle of the Century, yeah. for some reason. Yeah. yeah, the second reel of the Battle of the Century. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, like Mamba this morning, yes. turning up mm-hmm. uh, in, in Australia. In Australia. Yeah. Uh, films that went to the end of the line often stayed there. Yeah. It depends on the conditions under which they were kept. Um, mm. And there's still, there's a lot of stuff still coming out of Russia. We don't know yet. Mm. And part of uh, one of the festivals I go to, which is mostly lost, yes. is uh, yes. identifying films that have been unidentified. They're often fragmentary. Mm-hmm. You but and uh, Ben Modell, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Ben Modell and Andrew Simpson mm-hmm. uh, join me. Uh, we're the three accompanists. Mm-hmm. And we watch you know, tons of film, and we come up with titles for bits and pieces of them. Mm-hmm. Well, very rarely do we find a complete film, mm-hmm. but you you do turn up some important stuff, like a reel of Barbary Sheep, which is a Turner from 1917. Mm. One oh reel gosh. survives. Wow. Um, and a lot of stuff's turning up in Eastern Europe uh, mm. since the Iron Curtain fell, and the archives are becoming more forthcoming because mm-hmm. they can't do anything with the stuff. They don't have any money in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe to do it. And bigger names, like uh, I know they found some Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons in like a, a Norway or something like that. Just, mm-hmm. Yeah, just there, mislabeled or sure. whatever have you. And yeah, you, you you never know what yeah. you know, what will happen. Yeah, uh, uh, George Willeman said there is so much stuff that's all, all hidden almost in plain sight. You mm. don't know what you're going to find. Yeah, like a thief catcher at uh, Michigan Garage Sale. Yeah, so, yeah you exactly. Never know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's a it may it may crop mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so the Miracle Man, mm, unlikely but possible. Yeah, someday. someday. Yeah, someday. <laughs> someday. Yes. Well, anyway, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, allow me to interview you. And oh, it's then, been a pleasure. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm sorry I can't see you play tomorrow. I, oh. I have to go back to Buffalo t- uh, tonight. Oh, there I'm very go. sorry about that. Yeah. Twenty dollars a week is a fun uh, f- film. I mean, yeah. Silent George Arliss works exceptionally well. Really, I mean, I'm, you I'm always, assume, kind of, always uh, familiarizing with that voice, and that, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was just a good actor. Mm. I, I have a lot of respect for Arliss, mm. and uh, he made good films. He took mm. he took the business very seriously. Mm. So, and the rescue's not bad. 
Um, it actually is helped by it's missing a reel in the middle. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm sorry you won't be here for those. Yeah. Maybe next year we'll uh, figure out a way to be here for the, for the full weekend. So. Well, I hope All you right. do. Well, thanks, for, thanks again very much. You have a good uh, rest of your time here in Rome. I will. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, that was a really great interview that we had with that I got to get with uh, Dr. Philip C. Carley. I loved seeing him play when when he was in Rochester, and, and I miss I, I miss having the opportunity to see that regularly. I guess I could still see him from time to time, or if I really wanted to make the trip out on a Tuesday night. But yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway, without further ado, here is the next interview with the Nitrate Film Archivist George Williman. Hey everybody, I'm back here in Rome, New York at Capital Fest, uh, seeming to be New York State's premier silent film and early sound festival, and I'm here with someone from the Library of Congress. His name is... George Willeman. And tell us, George, before I ask you questions that uh, may not be so good, tell us exactly what you do, because I know it's film preservation okay. related. I know, yeah. let, let's, let's, let's get that codified out of the way okay yeah. my official yeah. title mm-hmm. is nitrate film vault manager oh my. what that means is it sounds we, hot oh yeah <laughs> ah, yes <laughs> sorry we are Go the ahead. we are the firebrands yes. of the library um yeah. so what my day-to-day job normally would be is taking care of our nitrate film collection which is eh, more or less 150,000 reels of nitrocellulose based film from about I think our earliest thing right now is about 1894 to wow. about 1951. Okay. Um, and, of course, the, the collection is growing all the time. More and more film keeps showing up. It amazes me because, of course, you know, we haven't had nitrate film produced since, like, 5051. Right. And, uh, but there's still so much out there in the hands yeah. of private collectors and far-flung archives and, and mm-hmm. film vaults in the Eastern Europe area and yes. outside of Paris and, mm-hmm. and Attics and basements and crawl yes. spaces, yeah. blah 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 blah. You know and all that stuff. So I continue to be amazed how much is found in the most mundane of places. Oh yes, I can't uh, that a thief catcher was found at a Michigan garage sale. Yes, it's just I yeah. I can't believe that we there's still this stuff that we haven't found in scraps like that. Yeah, well that's yeah. what amazes me because we do have large collections of of bits and pieces, mm-hmm. uh, especially from projectionists. Uh, mm. If you remember, um, what's that great Italian film about the projectionist? Uh, oh, 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 Cinema Paradiso? Uh, yeah, Cinema Paradiso, yeah. when they show the, the reel of kisses at the end, <sighs> which always makes me weepy. Yeah. Um, we have reels like that, where mm. that censors would tell them to take stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so we have like a whole reel of nothing but legs, <laughs> leg shots. <laughs> um, we also have some who where the projectionist says, oh, I really like that piece. Snip. Yeah. And they keep it. And although mm-hmm. that's, you know, not the best way of treating a film, in that way we actually have fragments of Lon Chaney's last silent film, Thunder, <gasps> and oh some fragments of The Rough Riders, which is a film about Teddy Roosevelt I, uh-huh. that does not exist anywhere else. Yeah. And that happens a lot. And um, a yeah. few color subjects uh-huh. that, for whatever reason, didn't get returned. Mm. Color subjects. Uh, like technicolor yeah, subjects. Yeah, like, like yeah. two color especially, because I two know colors, a lot yeah. of those are gone, yes. long gone. 
Um, it's a big deal when just like a little tiny, I think, well, what was I watching the other day? It was just a little tiny fragment of something. And it wasn't even a big part of the movie, but it was just uh, an old man and a, and a young woman arguing on a couch or like trying to be playful and arguing on oh, a couch. Oh, that's uh, and, Gold uh, Diggers of that's uh, Gold it. Diggers. Yeah, Gold Diggers. Yep. Yeah. Gold Diggers of Broadway. Gold Diggers of Broadway, yes. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was that. And I was just like, I, I, it's amazing that this exists, but. I wish it had been a, yeah. <laughs> a, a music number. Well, and there's so many of those. I mean, uh, when I started in this in this in this game, yeah. um, which 34 years ago, which just mm-hmm. just shocks me to know. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, I was like so many when I because I went to film school, right? Mm-hmm. And we were like, yes, nitrate. We got to save all this stuff. We got to right. do this. We got to find this, and and we got to get. We got to dig, and we got to find that Mullen London after midnight, and yeah. la la la, and I. Miracle Man still holding out hope yeah, that's against right. hope. And, and everyone's just weeping about, oh, all the films we've lost, all the treasures. Yeah. But now I'm at the point where it's like, look at all the stuff we have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we've shown here, some yeah. of the, most of the films that we showed this weekend from the library's collection, nobody's seen since they were originally released. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't have been any way to see them had we not had some of the modern technologies that we have now to put it back oh, together. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I noticed... Um, I think when some of the earlier silent film history books, it says like you know, ninety percent of all silent films are lost. Mm -hmm. Then as you move forward a little bit in time, it says eighty-five percent of all silent films are lost. We're about eighty. I think we're about eighty right now. That's that's the number of number du jour right now. Which still sounds awful, but if you've been following film history and and film preservation for the past twenty years, that's pretty good—a ten percent reduction. And I'm amazed at what has survived. When you think one of the things Mm -hmm. we like to show people, and and when they come to visit us mm-hmm. and they have to be really serious film people for me to take them back there they also have to be used to the cold because yes. Yes, we don't even cold. bring there's one reel we don't even bring it out of the vault we'll take the people mm-hmm. back to the vault and pull it out into the hallway and show it to them for a few minutes and put it right back away mm-hmm. but we have and again this is one of the things film history says it doesn't exist it, mm-hmm. sh- it shouldn't exist but we have it which is the original camera negative to the great train robbery oh my <laughs> yeah, that's what that's most people's reaction. Oh, oh my god. That was my reaction when I was a, you yeah. know, when I first started working for the library. I mean, yeah. my job was inspecting film cans and I was going through our Edison library. Yeah. This is like 1984-85. Yeah. And it came across as, "Oh, great train robbery, really cool." And it, yeah. you know, it was marked as a dupe. Okay? Sure. And I started inspecting it and I'm look just holding it up and looking at the light and I'm like, "This thing's full of splices." I mean, I don't know a whole lot about film at this point, yeah. but I know what splices mean. Yeah. And so I asked our quality control person to take a look at it a little closer, and he came back and said, "It's a negative, <laughs> yeah. the original negative." Oh my god! And it is in such good condition. Yeah, we could run new prints off of it. Wow! And it could it could be easily digitized. Now it is it's very delicate. Oh, it's very volatile. It's a hundred yeah. and well, they all are. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it is not deteriorating. That's amazing. It's nitrate, but it is not chemically deteriorating like. Later nitrate does. I was it, gonna ask. It's is very that, stable. Does, is that depend upon the how the chemist or it depends made on it up? we found it depends on everything. It depends on okay. the day of the week they did it. It depends <laughs> on what's in the water. Oh my god. Um it depends on the year it was done. Stuff yeah. during World War One and World War Two, very unstable. Because mm-hmm. all the good nitrate was going into bombs and right. other ammunition. Um, right. stuff before World War One, from the beginning up to like nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen that stuff seems to be very, very stable. I mean, we have hundreds of, of early films, you know, from like Biograph and Imp. We have original Biograph negatives. Wow. Um, wow. And they all smell like wintergreen. They use yeah. wintergreen <laughs> as, a, as a plasticizer. Huh. Um, but they're, they're beautiful, and yeah. they can be printed. Um, and they're not deteriorating. Yeah. They're just they're very, very stable. 
said, once you hit World War One, all bets are off. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that that seems to be the period of films that are that we seem to be missing the most important features from, like sort of like nineteen fourteen to like early twenties. Right, seemed to be so much missing. Yeah, during World War One, a lot is missing. Yeah, and then right at the end. Yeah, like the films from from once the Jazz Singer came out. It's like yeah. stuff after Jazz Singer. Yeah, because they kept making these wonderful silent films. Right. Nobody wanted to see them. I know. You know, it's, it's really tragic. sad. Yes. You know, and then we've lost some great stuff yeah. because yeah, the audience was was smitten with the new technology. Gee, yeah. that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it though? Mm. Doesn't yeah, it though? Pack up all your I, I, videotapes. Yeah, right. I, I would hope to think <laughs> that we're doing a little bit better at preservation nowadays than we have been with film. You'd be surprised, but oh, really? okay. yes. All right. Well, well the nice thing is, the yeah. nice thing is, yeah. you know, I mean, film has, as far as the business is concerned, I yeah. think, you know, they to them, regardless of what certain filmmakers say, film has died. Film's dead. Sad. As a production element. Yeah. Uh, right? okay. as a, not a production element, as uh, a release, a right, release, release element. element. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, I mean, I don't think, hopefully as long as there's chemistry, uh, we'll still yes. have people producing on film. Yeah. And archiving on film yeah, because for the, that's sake, the, for the sake of my hometown, Rochester, New York. I hope oh, that's true. yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping Kodak. I mean, we yeah. love Kodak. We've tried other film stocks. Um, we yeah. bought a lot of Orwo, mm-hmm. and and Orwo's okay, but it take a lot of work to make it look like Kodak. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were at one time the largest single purchaser of black and white Kodak motion picture stock. Oh. Um, and we would buy yeah. it, yeah, yeah. thirty-five. Yeah. Both all the, all the different emulsions, you know, mm-hmm. for sound recording and fine grain and release print and stuff what is like it, that. Triax, like, all this other stuff. It's all four know. numbers. It's, yeah. yeah, it goes beyond Triax. That's yeah. a, re, a reversal. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. we still have a lot stored away. The sad thing was a few years ago when Kodak went into receivership. Uh, they could not sign a multi-year contract with us, and that's when we had to go over to Orwo and buy a film from them. Mm. But I'm hoping that is turning it with Kodak turning itself around. That that is turning itself around for us, so we can get more Kodak stock. That'd be great. Now uh, I notice the Library of Congress has been working a lot more with uh, digital releasing and, and home video. I, I noticed with, uh, for instance, uh, when I heard was in Flower. Yes, was done in in, mm-hmm. con- in conjunction with the Library of Congress. Are there any other ones that uh, – do you feel like that's something that's growing? That's sort that of is growing based? by leaps and bounds. Yeah. It's getting so big and so busy that we are looking at having to come up with new workflows mm. just for that. Oh, that makes my heart and of course, uh, And, of course, the library wants to make sure that the library gets good press because, you know – for many years, the library just kind of would, and they still do. I mean, if, if we have a film in our collection, you can go to the library. You can pay for a copy of it if it's public domain. Right. Even if it's not, if you get permission for the copyright order, you can buy yeah. like a 2K file <laughs> of this film, yeah. and you can do whatever you want to with it. You can put it out, yeah. you know, as long as it's free and clear. Yeah. So we've gotten into this and that's what we're doing but we're doing it in conjunction with it because the library really can't do it on its own because we're a government agency so like we're working with Ben Modell and his Undercrank right, Productions undercrank. and we're working a lot with Kino I Lorber I believe um, uh, the movie Silently blog is, is done I don't know if that was with the Library of Congress or not with Kidnapped uh, yes Kidnapped, yeah. Kidnapped the, yeah. those those came from us because that I believe that came from our Kleine collection which was mm-hmm. actually the first major nitrate collection the library bought back in the 40s from George Kleine's estate. Um, Now, the sad thing about that one, um, I mean, it's great that it exists and we have all those films, but they, um, at the time, 
there was no thought of ever showing them again. They were just mm-hmm. going to be preserved, preserved yeah. elements. Archive material. So yeah. they hired, well, not hired, but they got the uh, USDA film lab. Uh, the Department of Agriculture had a film lab in Washington. And they were the only government agency that had a film lab in Washington, D.C. So the library contracted with USDA to copy all the Kleine films from their 35mm originals onto 16. Okay, yeah. And then when they were done, they destroyed the originals because they had no place to put them. Okay, yeah. So most of the Kleine, I think there may have been a few of the Kleines that were done on 35, but the majority of them are on 16. Now, if they did a really nice job on them, they look great. Sure, sure. And they, 16 can look great. Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. it's amazing. Um, that brings up another thing. I, I mentioned to you earlier when I when I met you that mm-hmm. you had a T-shirt on that had Black Hawk Films oh, yes. striped across, and that uh, organization. For those who don't know, Black Hawk Films was a was a big uh, proprietor of Show at Home film prints. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at you to make sure I get confirmation. They were they were the they but were yeah, the, the big um, one, right? And before video, if you wanted to watch a film at home, you would buy or most likely rent a one of these show at home right. prints. You'd buy it or rent it rent or it. you'd go to your public library. Yes. Like and even I'm it. sure Rochester had a huge uh, sixty millimeter library oh, I'm sure at, they at did. their at their library. I'm sure they did. I uh, came a little too late for that. Yeah. Springfield, but. Ohio, where I grew up, we had an amazing sixty millimeter library. Oh yeah. And that's one of the I that I always tell people is one of the reasons I'm here. My dad, who's yeah. an art teacher, would bring a sixty millimeter projector home from school mm. and then he'd go down to the library and he'd get filmed. So one day he, the first time he did this, I don't never I don't know why. I never forget this. The first time he did it, he put the reel on and it was busy bodies with Laurel and Hardy. Oh they work in a sawmill. Great. Yes. I'd never seen them before. <laughs> Who are these guys? They're hysterical. And yeah. so, and he would bring this stuff. We do it every month. We would bring yeah. films home, and I start getting more and more interested, not just in watching these old films, but just in the film itself. Mm-hmm. And then I found an ad in a magazine. You know, send one dollar for Blackhawk Films yeah, right. uh, you know, sample reel, and yeah. yeah, so I did that, and I got yeah. the catalogs, and I started. I had a paper out, so I started saving money and buying films, mm-hmm. which culminated in buying a complete print of Sunrise. Ooh. And all I, I had seen, I, it was uh, close to $300. Oh, my gosh. It had the soundtrack on it and everything. Wow. And, and, you know, I'd never seen it before. Yeah, 16, uh, right? No, Super 8. Oh, <laughs> they sold that on Super, Super 8? Super 8, yeah. They got a wow. license with Fox to do that one. Yeah. And um, Seventh Heaven. Seventh Heaven yeah. was another one. I think the Iron Horse. Okay, yeah. yeah. And they yeah, did a Western. pretty good, yeah, pretty yeah. good job on them for Super 8. Yeah. Um, I have actually Super found, though, that Blackhawk's standard of the 8mm prints... Most of Blackhawk's standard 8mm prints look better than their Super Super 8 prints because I found out uh, that standard, the aspect ratio of standard 8 film Uh matches 35. So you can do a direct reduction from 35 to 8. You can have like 35 on one side, 8mm on the other side, do a reduction. With Super 8, it's a different ratio, so you have to do some fudging and matting to make it fit. 8mm is a lot of fun. I I, uh, got my my, uh, Nana's old... uh, Eight millimeter projector, you know, and, <laughs> and I found online. It's like, hey, look, I could buy a little Charlie Chaplin movie yeah. for like fifteen bucks. So I got it and tried to play my guitar along with the movie and did a very <laughs> bad job, but it was fun. Well, and you the interesting thing about about Blackhawk yeah. films and also Castle films, yes, Castle films, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. uh, is that I would say if you were to go over and talk to mm-hmm. most of the people that are here at Capital Fest this weekend, yeah. especially ones that are maybe my age or older, mm-hmm. all of them had yeah. Castle films. Mm-hmm. And all of them had at least one Blackhawk film. Yeah. 
And it's it's ingrained in us. It's like yeah. in our DNA, yeah. practically. Yeah, it, it seems to be a common thread with a lot of people who are into classic films like this, or mm-hmm. into film preservation. Is like uh, either yeah, I had I got the Blackhawk Films catalog. Yeah. Or I wish uh, I'd hung on to a couple. Or I of saw them. it at like um, there's a pizza place that used to play. Oh well, there were I know there's Shakey's Pizza. Shakey's yeah, used to run them. Yep. Here, like yeah, mm-hmm. I went to Shakey's. And Shakey's saw Pizza and saw them. They'd run them on little loop yeah. machines. Whereas yeah. with me, I'm. I'm young enough that I saw my first silent films on Turner Classic Movies, and that's yeah. how I got hooked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, um, well, however it works, yeah, you know. And my son, I, I take him to. Um, there's a theater in North Tonawanda, the Riviera, in there, and we, I took him, and there was a concert, and uh, we saw Big Business with Laurel and Hardy. Oh, was, oh that's was a thing. great one. And uh, yeah. I. My son thought it was uh, very funny. He didn't like it when they got hurt, but he loved oh. watching the destruction of the, of, yeah. the Christmas tree. Yeah, oh, yeah, the house. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, how, old is, how old is your son He's now? He's three and a half. Yeah. That's very impressive. Yeah. I My son is four and a half, and yeah. I, I haven't taken him to a, a theater setting yet, but he has seen some, our gang. Yeah, uh, he loves trains, so I showed him Railroad, and, and he oh, just yeah. screams with laughter yeah. at that one. And <laughs> a friend a of ours idea. was babysitting him and showed him yeah. a Charlie Chase that had a lot of slapstick in it, and yeah. he just loved. He loves yeah. comedy, and he loves yeah. physical comedy. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, there's hope for him yet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I, I hope so. Every once in a while, like uh, I'll put out one of my books, and he'll just look over like that's Charlie Chaplin. I'm like, yes, very good boy, <laughs> very good. Uh, Someday, son, all this will be yours. Yeah, all this will be, yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, but. Uh, I guess one point I want to finish up on is just how important those show-at-home libraries were to film preservation. In a lot of cases, that seems to be the main print that we have. A lot of it, yes, especially the the Codescope library was a big one. Yes. Uh, Yes. And those prints are gorgeous. I mean, if we can find it, if we can't get a nitrate of a film, the next Mm -hmm. best thing is a Codescope Mm -hmm. of it. I know that's how Lon Chaney's Hunchback survives. Yes. Is the show at home prints. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and a couple other, a lot of universals, that's the only way they survive is in mm. the 60 moment show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of universals missing. The, uh, well, there's a whole story about that, which yeah. I'm sure you've fires. Read about. Yeah, yeah, Fire. uh-huh. yeah. Deliberate fires, shall we say. Yeah, that and like um, early 20s Fox stuff. Like I know yep. that there's all these Fox sunshine comedies that are just lost to the world. Yeah, that was all a, those, um, the big fire in 37. What's his name? Uh, Lloyd Hamilton. Lloyd Hamilton, all Lloyd his Hamilton. stuff went yeah, up in fire. Yeah, doing a little duck yeah. walk with my fingers. Yeah, um, and uh, and the original Negative Sunrise, I think, yeah. went up in that. Luckily, there was other material not mm-hmm, in their mm-hmm. vaults there. So, what? Uh, I, I guess this is the real question to finish up. But what's the what's some exciting news you can share with us with what's going on with the Library of Congress and, and, nit- um, and the nitrate wise? A nitrate wise, um, or otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me see. Well, it just came out Tuesday, the past Tuesday on the seventh, mm-hmm. uh, our latest release with Undercrank, which is the Kinetophone DVD. Yeah, they ran out. That was going to. They one. ran out. I'm uh, so excited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's online. It's yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. I highly recommend it. And mm-hmm. I'm not just saying that because I was the person who put them together. Yeah. But uh, that is like that's like the cream of the crop as far as things I've gotten to work on yeah. because it was one of those things where I known these films existed and I'd wanted for years and years to Mm -hmm. see them Mm -hmm. and when I got to meet uh, Jerry Fabris who is the curator of the Edison Historical Society it turns out that that's exactly what he wanted too he knew about the (laughs) cylinders but he couldn't figure out he wasn't sure how to get the project going so we got it together and they're oh, out now, amazing. and people are going to see them, and they are amazing. Yeah, and for folks who don't know who might be listening, uh, these are sound films made before the era of sound films that 
Yeah, nineteen thirteen. Right, the one you with the, the fairy tale, fairy tale. Yeah, uh, nursery favorites, which nursery was put favorites. out, which was yeah. put out by Black Hawk Films. Yes, with uh, Sons. Uh, soundtrack or with the soundtrack? With the soundtrack, oh, yes. That so one. There, there have been other people who have yeah. uh, who have worked to to create a, a yeah. synchronized versions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a gentleman named Art Schifrin who who was able mm-hmm. to put together a couple. I think I'm not sure if not, um, Nursery Favorites was one. It may well have been. Yeah. The the advantage that we have over some of the earlier attempts is again the the digital era now that we yeah. can very accurately. Get oh, yeah. the speed on the film correct, mm-hmm. and then we can fiddle with the soundtrack. Audio, messing around with audio is a lot easier. I recently, a friend of mine picked up an old reel-to-reel for me, Ikai, which has been fun to tool around right. with. Right. But it made me appreciate this little doodad a exactly. lot more. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> yeah. I'm embarrassed to say, yeah. um, I found some 16mm Castle films at uh, a thrift store and got them because they were sure. amazingly inexpensive. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to show James some of these. I'm going to show yeah. him some films yeah so i got out the screen and set it up i uh-huh. got out the stand and i set it up i yeah. got out the projector and i set uh-huh. it up and i put the reel on it it's, it's like 40 minutes later i'm yes. finally loading up the film like no wonder dvd is so popular <laughs> right what a pain yeah. and i was actually rather pleased to see though that he was just as interested in watching the projector mm-hmm. run yep as watching my, the film on the projector my son will will just ask to say can i see it go can I can I see the projector go? I'm like <laughs> sure, if you want. Uh, I would please, yeah, twist my arm. Yeah. Um, you know. And that's one thing. One thing. If I could have one one moment out there for all of you listening, mm. if you have young people that you know who have even the slightest interest in film, yeah. let them see film. Let yeah. them see projectors. Let them mm-hmm. see film run. Let them know about it. See if you can spark an interest in it because as great as digital is, we still need people out there mm-hmm. who are interested and understand and right. cherish film. There's nothing quite like the alchemy that yeah. film is. Yeah, absolutely. And you also said earlier, you had another, uh, we were talking po- about podcasting. You said you had a yes. little podcast out there. You want to plug that real quick? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I have a good friend that I went to college with who was, is now the storyboard mm-hmm. artist for the Coen Brothers. And uh, for several years, we did a show on the radio called Filmically Perfect. Mm. And it has been put back up on, it's on iTunes, it's on, uh, Drat, what is the name of that other thing? Uh, Spotify? Not Spotify, uh, Drat. Mm, Podcast addict. It's not a, it's actually not a podcast thing, it's just a music listening thing, and I can't remember what it is. But uh, you can actually go to our, the best way to get to it is go to our website, which is www.perfectmovie.net. And it is undergoing a rebirth. We have recorded three new episodes that aren't available yet, Mm -hmm. and we're hoping to uh, get together and do more and get it going. It's a fun show. Mm -hmm. Uh, We take it from two points of view. For me, it's the historical point of view, Mm -hmm. and for my friend, it's the technical point of view. Mm-hmm. And so we've done really obvious ones like Day the Earth is Still and Citizen Kane. Sure. But then we've also done things like Carnival of Souls yeah. and other films yeah. that some people say, why do you think that's perfect? And we yeah. talk about why we yeah. think it's perfect. Yeah. Perfect doesn't mean that every shot is perfect. Right. It's, it, we've got these really strange rules. But check it out. It, yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it sounds like fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to check that, oh, checking that out on, uh, on Monday. Um, well, thank you very much, George. Oh, my uh, pleasure. A, a pleasure to talk with you. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I'm going to go back in and watch uh, this film with my buddy. All righty. Who, who, who came with me all the way up from Buffalo. So. That's very nice. Yeah, so thanks again so Thank much. Thank you. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, George Willeman, uh, nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress. George was great. 
uh, I had a great time talking to him, and really, I should have just left the recording on because we just kept talking after that. We had a really, really fun conversation about uh, about all kinds of different film, ranging from from serials to to Tarzan movies to just all, all sorts of stuff. It, it was it, it was a blast of a conversation. I was, and it was very gracious of him to talk to me and. And I, I really enjoyed um, my, my time getting to talk to him. So, wrapping up, I will say that this, that, that this was a lot of fun. We, Seth and I had so much fun at this place. It, it was just a very special... He, uh, Seth put it this way, and I, I think I agree. It was very much like the Midwest Gaming Classic in that it was just a really big celebration for, admittedly, a very niche thing. Something that uh, you know, the, the, this is a sort. This is an, an, so niche that it's hard to talk with with uh, immediate uh, friends and, and family. You know, so getting to be in a place with so many other people who share this interest is such a rare thing, and it's such a welcome thing. And because of that, there, there is just such a celebratory nature to the whole thing and it was great you know when the movies were showing like like i mentioned with uh who killed gail preston when rita hayworth comes on the screen everybody applauds when they say when they see lupi velez in the storm you know for the first time when she first comes on screen everybody applauds it was uh there was that just that great audience participation in in a movie where i think in mamba when the bad guy finally gets you know gets clocked in the head and everyone, everybody applauded for that and hooped and hollered. And it was just, it was just a, a really fun time with a really great audience and just beautiful music, beautiful music for the silent films. I, 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 I cannot remember the names of the organists that, that played, but they were all wonderful. Music was great. Oh, I should also mention, Seth would be very disappointed with me if, we, if I did not. But when we went to go, we went to like a Rite Aid or something like that, and Walgreens, to get cash for the vendor room. And there was the Rome, New York newspaper. And there was a very important headline on the front, which I documented on Instagram. Which was, dear friends, Nikki Doodles. Nikki Doodles turned 20 years old. <laughs> Seth and I saw that newspaper and we laughed for a very long time about Nicky Doodles. We did not buy the newspaper, so we have no idea who or what Nicky Doodles is, but we prefer to keep it a mystery. So, happy birthday, Nicky Doodles. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else worth mentioning about our time there. Um, but yeah, it was just it it was terrific it was great getting a ton of people but yeah anyway thank you very much for listening i've been your host nate lockhart and you can find me on twitter at nate underscore lockhart and you can find me on instagram at nathaniel dot lockhart there'll be links for that in the in the article the company article uh, you can find seth zelinsky at cap americanski on Twitter. Of course, we encourage you to continue going to thegeekiverse.com for all kinds of geeky articles about superheroes, comic books, old crap like this, uh, video games, 
books, novels, uh, anything you can think of. Go check them out. It's a great, we've got great writers, great podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, if you go to our SoundCloud page or uh, iTunes, Geekiverse iTunes on SoundCloud, I believe it's it's a thing media SoundCloud page. And on there, there's a myriad of other podcasts, including Geek's Got Game, a video game podcast, Girls Who Geek, which offers a, uh, a feminine perspective on geek culture. Uh, and uh, let's see, what else is there? There is, uh, oh, spoiler casts, talking all about, uh, you know, recent movies. And, oh, geez, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Just check it out. Check that out. And there's a YouTube page which is coming up with great stuff all the time. Seth Zielinski himself just released uh, the first in a series of videos called PS Treks, where he talks about PlayStation 1 games at length. And that's a... Uh, although there's only been one entry, it's a very enjoyable series so far. And speaking as someone who did not... who was a Nintendo boy growing up and did not give two licks about the PlayStation... I really enjoy the series. It's actually making me give a darn about the PlayStation, and that's high praise. So please check that out. It, I, I really enjoy that. Um, anyway, oh, and one more thing. Josiah would be very upset with me if I did not say this. The Patreon page, patreon.com slash thegeekiverse. Please, 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 please give us a buck or two. To help keep the lights on every little bit helps uh running a website uh contrary to popular belief ain't cheap hosting costs money hosting sound hosting these podcasts costs a lot of money and anyway yeah and so every little bit helps with that so please consider donating to the patreon page with that all having been said thank you very much for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode for you. Love you. Bye.